Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. Hi, this is Bill. I thought this interview was so good, I wanted you to hear it again. So enjoy. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I am Bill Arnold, and today I have Marshall Siegel with me. I can't wait to talk to Marshall because I always enjoy when he comes on, and I think you do too because I hear from you all the time. He is a, a staff writer at DesiringGod.org. He also is a co-pastor of a church here in the Twin Cities. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he has written a lovely article that we're going to discuss today on Find Your Way to Help the Hurting, which I know is a topic that we can all identify with because we all know someone who is hurting. Marshall, nice to have you here. Oh, it's great to be back, Bill. Thank you. Now, you opened this article about a, just kind of a gut punch story. Yeah, this article was inspired by an experience we had actually last Christmas. So it was it's a little bit of a go, but it, we're coming up here on the holidays, and so it feels appropriate. We were staying with a family that's precious to us, and they were pregnant with their sixth child. Something of a surprise, but just the best kind of surprise. And so we were staying with them for several days. We got there, got to rejoice with them, celebrate with them this new life. And then on Christmas morning, uh, we went to church and we came back and we knew something was wrong. And we found out a few minutes later that that uh, the wife had had a miscarriage on Christmas morning. Unbelievable. And I mean, I could write articles all kinds of articles about that experience. But the thing that stuck with me weeks and months later was watching their church, just a hundred folks, but watching their church on Christmas day and then the day after, and then the days after that surround this family and care for them. And it was one of those moments where you read stories of the Bible and you hear sermons and messages about what it means to be the body of Christ, ears and noses mm -hmm. and hands and, and it all feels abstract and good, and we're all excited about it. But then when it gets down to the nitty-gritty of what that actually means, it's often way harder and more painful than we want. And yet I just watch this church rally and care for this family. And, um, and so it just had me thinking about it for a long time, seeing that. And, and we just happened to be staying with them. So we got to see way more than most people get to see when somebody has a miscarriage. Usually that's more of a private Thing. You don't you don't hear people sharing about it very often, even though it's really prevalent suffering, a prevalent experience. And so it was such an honor. It's like sacred ground mm -hmm. to watch these people come in and out of the house uh, over that week. So that's what inspired the article. And it sounds, uh, Marshall, according to your uh, article, that the church had to learn how to grieve together. And they did that so beautifully and they carried each other's burdens and they showed up in hard moments. I love that showing up in hard moments because that's a, a powerful form of love. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I wonder, um, I feel this in Minnesota. So for those that are here in Minnesota listening, maybe you feel this. I don't see this kind of togetherness come as naturally. Uh, and I don't know if that's 
geographic or cultural or if that's just we're more independent now because of technology and so we're not as connected and dependent on each other as we used to be. But it was really strange to see just how easily and quickly these families moved in to care for this family that it just – they were – throughout the day, it felt like every hour or maybe even more than that, somebody was coming in with a meal or a drink or just to come and, and talk for a minute and pray and cry together. And so I feel that that dynamic is hard to cultivate mm-hmm. in, a, in a church or in a, in a community today, maybe harder than it used to be. And so I, I was really precious to watch. And then we came, my wife and I came back and we're just like, how do we, how are we going to be these kinds of believers, these kinds of friends, this kind of family to the people that God's put in our life here? How do, how do we grieve together when, when there's grief? How do we suffer together? Uh, you know, Romans talks about weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice. Are we a, a with mm-hmm. kind of people? Are we moving in to, to rejoice with, with one another? Are we, are we moving in to weep to suffer, to, to grieve with one another. The power of presence. Right. Yeah. I heard a powerful story of the power of presence. Um, there was a girl who lost her dad to pancreatic cancer when she was in high school and having conversations with her dad saying, and the dad was saying, I, I will clearly miss some significant events in your life. And in fact, after she uh, was in late college, just got out, she was a bridesmaid in a wedding and she witnessed the dad getting up and giving the toast, right? And then um, when it came time for the father-daughter dance, she went into the bathroom just for a good cry. And the table she was sitting at and the the entire adjacent table when she came out of the bathroom were just standing there. And each one gave her a hug. Didn't say a word. She says, that was exactly what I needed. Yeah, and any of us that have experienced that know that something happened there that doesn't happen in the same way through a text message. No. <laughs> mm. You know, being in the same room, holding one another, just like you said, even if you don't say anything, just to be there mm-hmm. uh, with Su- believers that are up, suffering. Right? Yeah, I mean, she she remembers those faces. Yeah. And those hugs. Now, nobody said anything. Nobody tried to construct a, a phrase or a sentence of any kind. They just saw her, made eye contact, hugged her. That was it. Right. And so I, I suspect part of why I wrote the article is that I think a lot of people are suffering alone, that they're going through some kind of suffering. They're reluctant to share it, maybe because it feels socially awkward, maybe because it, it just makes them more vulnerable. Whatever the reasons are, they're, they're reluctant to share that suffering. And so they just experience it all alone by themselves, and there's no one in the room with them. I, again, not even to say anything, which I think there's a place for that. Right. But just to be there, just to just to know that they're suffering and to have somebody close by. Mm-hmm. Marshall Siegel is my guest. He's an author of DesiringGod.org, and we're encouraging uh, that you find your way to help the hurting, and he's going to help us do that. Uh, Marshall, talk about the churches in Macedonia. They were not doing well by worldly standards, were they? Right. So when I saw what I saw last Christmas and started to wonder, how could I become this kind of person? I go to scripture. Where does this kind of thoughtfulness, where's this kind of generosity come from? And my mind went to Second Corinthians 8 and 9, which I think are just awesome chapters for cultivating this kind of togetherness, uh, to, to cultivate our eagerness, our readiness, our ability to move towards those that are hurting. And so in first in Second Corinthians uh, 8 and 9, starts, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given 
among the churches of Macedonia, and this is where it gets important, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So there's some things about this church in Macedonia that don't make any sense. You see a severe test of affliction. So they're going through some suffering themselves paired with a wealth, uh, uh, sorry, an abundance of joy, severe test of affliction and abundance of joy. And then you see extreme poverty paired with a wealth of generosity. So these are strange people. They're poor, but they're generous and they're severely afflicted, but they're happy. Mm. And so Paul is coming to them and he's saying the, the church in Jerusalem, believers in Jerusalem are suffering. They need help. They're hurting. I need other churches to move towards them to give so that, so that they have what they need. And the Macedonians don't have anything. Extreme poverty. He's asking the wrong people. <laughs> and yet what do we see? It, it says that, that uh, they overflowed in a wealth of generosity. So people that were clearly not wealthy by earthly standards were wealthy towards the needs in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And these are needs hundreds of miles away, which really meant something back then when you couldn't drive or fly. So they're giving to people they don't even know, and they're giving gladly mm. because of what they have what they have in Christ. So I was drawn in to, to study these strange people because I want to be that kind of person today in our church and in mm. our neighborhood. Marshall, how do I be others-focused instead of me-focused? Yeah, I thought about that driving here, just praying about this conversation because I think the holidays are a time when we could be uniquely self-oriented, and yet it's also a time when when we when the needs are maybe more apparent around us. And so, um, yeah, I think like the church in Macedonia, trying to be mindful and open and eager to meet the needs around us, especially this time of year. I mean, this is a time when we're being, when we're stopping to be grateful for what God has done, but it's also a time when we can look around and say, what, what are the, where are the needy people around us? We see this churches do initiatives through Thanksgiving and into Christmas, especially looking for people that are hurting. And so I think using the opportunity of this week in particular to be grateful to God for what he's given you, all that he's provided for you, and especially in Christ, and then asking God, where, where could that overflow? You've been amazingly generous to me. I have far more than I need. Mm-hmm. And more than that, I have you. So how could, that, how could that overflow in some tangible way in this next week or these, these next couple of months into particular needs around me? And that could be needs that you're more, more aware of, like in your family or your neighborhood. It could be in your church if there's, if there's maybe bigger needs uh, across your church family, or it could be out in your neighborhood or community. If you look mm-hmm. for, for people that are in need, how could what God has given you, whatever he's given you, remember the Macedonians had nothing, and yet they, they found a wealth of generosity. So even if you think you don't have a lot to give, you probably have more than they had to give. And so the question is, what, what can what you have, how could that meet a real need around mm-hmm. you? So good. Marshall Siegel is my guest. You can learn more about Marshall at DesiringGod.org. Now, when we talk about Marshall and every good work, we're not talking just about financial. We're talking about a nice home-cooked meal, a note of encouragement, unexpected phone call, maybe a nice pot of coffee. And I love this you put in your article, 
thoughtful questions. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I love that. I mean, for a hurting person, that might be the thing that meets the need more than anybody else. In a big way. Else. Maybe food would be great, so you don't have to worry about a meal. Uh, or meeting some other financial need or practical need would be great. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes, it's just someone willing to sit and listen and ask a thoughtful question, to, to not rush by the suffering or assume that somebody else is going to take care of that person, but to actually lean in and say, hey, I'm here, and, and I want to hear more about it. I want to hear more about what this need is or what the hurt is. Uh, if they've lost someone or, or if they're dealing with some kind of disappointment or betrayal or to have somebody who's willing to press in and say, I'm not going to rush off to my own agenda, to my the priorities I had for the day, but I'm going to sit and I'm going to listen and I'm going to ask questions. Often that's meeting a greater need than we realize. Mm-hmm. And I love the fact that you say in the article, don't assume someone else will send a meal don't assume they're overwhelmed with messages and visits because that is a tendency we will have. Like, oh, they're probably getting all kinds of attention right now. And the truth might be, yes, they might be, but the truth might be people have stopped calling. Yeah, I'm sure that it happens that a suffering person gets too much attention. Uh, but I'm sure that it happens uh, relatively few times compared to the people that wish somebody would would stop by, wish somebody would call, wish somebody would bring the meal. And so I think we often look at it, especially if it's a bigger church or, or it's a setting where there are more people and think, oh, certainly somebody else is going to go care for this It's a numbers person. game. It doesn't have to be me, right? There's right. someone else will do it. Of course, somebody yeah. else is doing yeah. that. And I just think uh, we should seize the opportunity. I mean, it, it says in in Second uh, Corinthians that these Macedonians didn't just give eagerly, but they begged for the opportunity to give. I think that's the kind of heart posture we should have mm-hmm. as we hear about these needs is let me let me do that. Let let me be a part of meeting that need. I mean Jesus says uh it's more blessed to give than to receive. That's the kind of heart we should have when these needs come up is oh I hope that I get to be a part of meeting this need. I don't want this to go by. I'm jealous for the joy you want in. of being God's instrument <laughs> to meet that need. Yeah. Um so that's the kind of heart I want to have. I love it. Marshall Siegel is my guest. We're talking about an article that he wrote in DesiringGod.org. Find your way to help the hurting. I hope you are uh, being inspired by this because there are so many people hurting and we need to find our way to get to help them. So good. If you have a question or comment, you always know my text line is open just for you. 877-933-2484. We'll take a short break and be right back with Marshall in just a minute. Hi, this is Bill Arnold, host of the Afternoon Show. My friend and colleague Susie Larson will say that even when you feel discouraged, God is still there. He's still good. He cares about you and is in the business of fixing what is broken to make you whole. Experience his peace today. This month, thanks to our friends at Thomas Nelson, Faith Radio is giving away 100 copies of Susie Larson's new book, Waking Up to the Goodness of God, 40 Days Toward Healing and Wholeness. You can enter to win yours right now at MyFaithRadio.com. Connecting Faith to Life, Faith Radio. (music) 
Welcome. If you just tuned in, Marshall Siegel is sitting here drinking water, sitting in the studio, ready to get back into this brilliant discussion. He's uh, written an article that shows up in Desiring God. That's where he works. He's a staff writer there. The article is called Find Your Way to Help the Hurting. So we're trying to encourage everyone to reach out to help the hurting. Now, because, Marshall, you always come full of Scripture, let's look at 2 Corinthians 9. Talk about that. Yeah, so uh, in the next chapter, so we just were looking at 2 Corinthians 8 and the Church of Macedonia, suffering, poor, and yet happy and generous. That's the kind of person I want to be. And then he turns in 2 Corinthians 9 to try to motivate them to give. So we're talking about the church in Corinth now, not Macedonia. He's telling them about Macedonia to, to motivate them to give generously. And he says, he tries to sum himself up. He says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. So there's the cheerfulness again, the joy, the, gen- the cheerful jo- generosity for God loves a cheerful giver. So up until now, he's just, he's trying to incentivize him. He's saying, mm-hmm. he's saying, if you sow bountifully, you're going to reap bountifully. So that's a, that's a word for you this week, next couple of weeks, next couple of months. As you think about your holiday season, make it a reap bountifully type season. And the way we're going to do that is to sow bountifully. That I like. Like so maximally over these next weeks into the needs of others. And you're going to find that God, that you'll reap because that's the kind of God that we have. Those who sow bountifully will also reap bountifully. So he's, he's putting out a reward for them. But then he turns, I think, to try to quiet some of their fears that keep them from moving towards the hurting or keep them from giving more generously in this case. He says, and God is able, and now count them. There's five alls in just this one verse. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every, that's another all, good work. All grace, all sufficiency, all things, all times, and every good work. And I think in all five of those, he's trying to quiet the kinds of fears or lies that keep us from moving towards the hurting. And here's how I think he does it. He says, all great, that he, he, God will make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency, all sufficiency, what does that mean? It means you're going to have everything you need to, to move towards the needs around you. All grace, all sufficiency. You're going to have everything you need and you're not going to deserve any of it because it's grace. Grace is going to flow to you. And when you think you won't have enough to give into that need, you're going to find that you have it. Because it doesn't depend on you. It depends on what God has given you. All sufficiency in all things. So you might feel well supplied in certain areas and you might be worried, oh, he's not going to provide for that conversation or he's not going to provide for me to, to give financially to that need or to take a meal or to write that check. Mm-hmm. But he's saying, no, not just in a few things. You'll have sufficiency in all things. Every area of your life will be covered by grace. He's going to give you what you need to abound in every good work to others, to meet the needs of others. And not just all things, but at all times. <laughs> so there's certain seasons, and I know if you're listening to this, there's certain seasons where you feel like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm doing pretty well right now. So this is the time for me to go meet some needs for other people. And he's saying, no, like the church in Macedonia, this is an all times kind of grace. He's going to meet you in all things 
at all times. So that means that even the seasons where we feel most depleted, even the seasons where we feel weakest, he's given us what we need to go meet the needs of others. And then the last one, you may abound in every good work. Bill, you mentioned this earlier, that every good work means it's not just giving. It's not just a matter of giving to the needs in Jerusalem financially, but in every good work. Mm-hmm. That means every little small thing we do to move towards others and love, to meet the needs of others, uh, he's giving us all grace, all sufficiency, and all things at all times to go and do good works for others. So I love that. I mean, I, just, I find so much help there. It's a great verse for a new year as we come up to January. That's to think through, like Marshall, come on, <laughs> it's coming. I don't want to do coming, that. It's coming, Bill. Twenty twenty four is coming, and I'm telling you right now, if you're in Christ, you're going to have all grace, all sufficiency whoa, whoa. At, in all things. Whoa, at whoa, all whoa, times. whoa! We're in 2023 right now. <laughs> that's right. Okay. That's where we are. I got to write. Um, I got to get better at writing stuff. This is one to circle back to. All right, all right. So, Marshall Siegel, let's talk about gifts that God has given and the people that God has put around us. Right. And so another way just to think about this, again, specifically where you are, wherever you are, whoever you are, uh, a text I love is Acts 17, 24 to 27. And the point here is just to be to think about the people that God has put in your life. To think about them in terms of God actually putting them in your life and putting you in their life. So he says the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So there's an all, all sufficiency. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Here's the key phrase. Having determined allotted periods, that just means when they lived, and the boundaries where they lived of their dwelling place, that they should seek God. And perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So what I take from these verses is that you look around at all the people in your life, the people in your family, the people on your street, the people in your church, the people at your workplace. It says right here, God has determined the allotted periods, the times when they would live and the boundaries of their dwelling place where they would live. And guess what? He put you right in the middle of that time and that place to be one way that they might seek God and find him. So I just, I just say in terms of moving towards uh, helping those who are hurting or anybody else this season, look around and think, God has put these people around me and he told, he's told me in Acts 17 that he wants them to seek him. So how might the resources, my time, my conversations with them, how might I be a means of them moving towards that goal? Because he says he's not far. So if they seek him, they're going to find him. And this is a great season, especially for those who are hurting. This is a great season for those people to, to move towards him and find him. Marshall, if we are moving towards those hurting, talk a little bit about how we need to be okay with messy and be comfortable with uh, people's discomfort. Yeah, we were talking beforehand, and Bill confessed that he doesn't want to move into the, the discomfort <laughs> of these kinds it's of situations. Challenging sometimes. Yeah, yep. absolutely. We all know that. Um, that's part of the whole reason of the article is part of what I've been sharing from these texts is to try to get over the discomfort, get over the cost. When the Church of Macedonia uh, gave abundantly, it didn't say that it was comfortable or easy for them. Mm-hmm. The sense, I think, was that it was painful. So I think we need the truth of the gospel. We need to, we need to set our eyes on Christ. It says in, in verse 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, what did he do? Yet for your sake, he became poor. So we're about to celebrate at Christmas. 
so that you by his poverty might become rich. He suffered so that we might become rich. And if he was willing to go through what he went through, the the humiliation uh, that he went through in his life and death so that we might be rich, are we really going to – are we really going to recoil from the discomfort, the awkwardness, the pain of moving towards those in suffering? Um, so I think looking at Christ, meditating on Christmas, meditating on the cross, and uh, using that as fuel to overcome the things that make this kind of ministry tough. Mm-hmm. Marshall, how do we encourage one another to be this? Yeah, so just starting from the very beginning with the body uh, where we started at that church uh, that we were visiting with. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we have to see this as something we do together and not something that we do separately. So God's given me gifts and God's given everyone else in my church gifts. And I might be an ear and somebody else might be a shoulder and somebody else might be a knee. And this person that's needy in our church doesn't just need an ear. They're going to need all kinds of help in ministry. And so I think getting shoulder to shoulder with some people in our church and our family and saying, Hey, let's go care for this person together. Let's go talk to them together. Let's, let's put a meal train together uh, I think when we do that kind of ministry together, the joy of it is doubled, it's tripled, it's quadrupled, and we help each other uh, endure some of the cost and some of the awkwardness of doing that kind of ministry when we do it together. I think it's vital. Mm-hmm. What can you tell us about the family that you were with that suffered that miscarriage, now looking back, and what they experienced through the love of everyone that came around them? Yeah. I bet they could write a book too, couldn't they? They could. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we just saw them uh, a month ago. And, and, and in many ways, the pain is still fresh. Mm-hmm. As, as those who've walked through miscarriage know, it, it's, not a, it's not a pain that goes away quickly. Um, and they're hoping in Jesus more than ever. And, and that church, it, you know, it, every church goes through trials together. Every tr- church, go through, church goes through joys together. And so still today, we just were, uh, my wife and I actually, my wife and I were actually just praying for that church today and giving thanks for how they're caring for each other in this season through some other difficult circumstances. And so, uh, yeah, praise God that they're suffering well, that family and grieving well, and that Christ is being magnified through mm-hmm. their their uh, pain. Marshall, have you had an episode in your life where there was a crisis um, either in your life or your family's life and you experienced that church family coming around you and loving you well so well? Absolutely. I'm I'm trying to think if there's one in particular that comes to mind. Well, you don't have to be specific, but I mean But absolutely. Yeah, I mean we've we've got that. three small kids. Uh, my wife's got health challenges and and so I can think of seasons where we've had either sudden or prolonged suffering of various kinds and I can just faces immediately come to mind wow, of those faces. who would call mm. or text or show up uh to care for us on days like that. Who there's there's particular couples that I can think of in our church that if we text them and say, pray for us, they're probably going to show up at our front door. Whoa. And I love that. Oh, it's Whoa. so good for us to have. And they don't ask if I can swing by. No, no, no. They just knock. And I, they shouldn't. <laughs> they shouldn't. Marshall. Because we might say us. no. And we need, we need yeah. that. We need their arms. We need, we need a hug. We need, we need them close in those moments. And so I'm so thankful that we have people in our life yeah. like that. Uh, sometimes people just need arms around them. You know, we're, we're analog beings living in a digital world, and we need touch. We need a hand on the shoulder. We need a hug. We need somebody that just sits there and processes your pain. Yeah. Hmm. 
Yeah, I, I've been talking most of this time about how we might go help someone that's hurting and how, and how Jesus would be magnified in that. But maybe a, a good word here would just be to say, for this kind of ministry to happen, we have to be able to receive this kind of love too. Mm-hmm. So if you're hurting, uh, you might be reluctant to reach out for help or to make that need known to somebody else. And I just want to encourage you, uh, this won't happen. Like well, all that I've just described in the last 30 minutes won't happen if we're not vulnerable enough to ask for help, if we're not vulnerable enough to share what what's hurting right now. And so it's a two-way street. There's going to be seasons in your life where you're uh, especially supplied and able to meet the needs of others. And there's going to be seasons of your life where you're especially needy and you need somebody else to come and meet those needs. And God has done that in the church. He's put need in the church. He's put need in you so that this kind of grace might be seen so that people could see all grace flowing into your need Mm -hmm. through the body of Christ and give him glory for that. Really nice. Marshall Siegel, thank you for being here. This is a timely uh, article, and I would encourage you uh, to head over to DesiringGod.org. You can find this article, Find Your Way to Help the Hurting. If you want to get some of the scripture that Marshall talked about, it's all here in the context of this article, and you can reach it at DesiringGod.org. We'll take a little break, and I can't wait when we come back. Uh, Jen uh, Bradbury is going to talk about her book, Faith Beyond Youth Group. Can't wait. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. You know, a lot of typical youth ministries today will uh, produce really nice kids, obedient kids. They behave themselves, and then then they leave the church and the faith. And even those who remain struggle to extend their faith beyond youth group. They seem like good kids, but their lives and decisions outside of youth group aren't oriented toward Jesus. Clearly, that's not what we want. And I'm so glad to have on the program Jen Bradbury, she's co-authored a book called Faith Beyond Youth Group, Five Ways to Form Character and Cultivate Lifelong Discipleship. Thanks for waiting, Jen. Nice to have you on. Yeah, it's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And I love the topic of youth ministry because I think it's so crucial and critical. And I know that's your heartbeat as well. So let's just start talking about youth ministry and why it's so important right now. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, at FYI, at Fuller Youth Institute, we believe that youth ministry is really the hope of the church, that young people are such a breath of fresh air and that they bring a reality check to us, that their faith matters, and that the way they live out their faith in the world around them uh, has the ability to change things and to impact the world uh, in a way that we want to see more and more of. And that living out of your faith is something that starts in youth group and starts in youth ministry, but it can't just stay there. Well said. Now, one of my big concerns is discipleship. As kids are going through high school and youth group, are they, are they getting discipled or are they, or are they meeting and having a largely a social interaction? <laughs> 
Yeah, of course. Uh, and that's our concern, too. And so what we did for this book, for Faith Beyond Youth Group, is that we've spent the last three or so years studying discipleship across our country. And so we first surveyed uh, a diverse body of youth leaders from all across the country, all different types of denominations, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different races, all of that were accounted for. And then we went and we actually interviewed about a hundred of these youth leaders in depth to hear about what they were doing to disciple young people. Mm -hmm. And then after that, we went and we visited seven congregations that we really felt were noteworthy in the way that their discipleship efforts were actually extending beyond youth group. So the ways in which young people were actually going out and living out their faith. And what we found was that character formation is really deeply connected to long-term faith. In, in a lot of ways, that makes sense, right? Who we are as a person of God, as a follower of Jesus, should spill out from us. But in a lot of ways, what we saw as we talked to youth leaders is that youth leaders have actually really forgotten about character formation as part of this discipleship equation. And so going back to your comment about, you know, it seems like sometimes it's just social. We absolutely believe that Jesus should be at the heart of discipleship. And what we found in our research is that youth ministries that were doing discipleship well were doing five things that we call the faith beyond youth group compass. And those five things are they were cultivating trust. They were modeling growth. So they were essentially saying, here's what it looks like to live out your faith. They were teaching for transformation in ways that went beyond one-way transmission of information. And then they were going out and they were actually practicing together what it looked like to live out their faith. And as they did that, they were making meaning from what was happening around them. So there was this undeniable element of integration happening as young people were, again, living out their faith but then processing what does that actually mean and how do I keep doing that? Mm -hmm. Jen Bradbury is my guest. She's co-written a book with Kara Powell and Brad Griffin called Faith Beyond Youth Group. We had Brad on before. He's actually a great interview as well as you are awesome, Jen. Let me ask you, you've brought up the word character a couple of times. Does that is that a word that, that young people are drawn to or is that seem like an outdated or even harmful word to young people? Yeah, great question. Character can be a loaded term for sure. We saw this both in the young people that we were interacting with in this research, but we also saw it in youth leaders who had really strong feelings about the word character. And what has happened is that for a lot of us, there's baggage that comes from how character has been used to actually get us to conform to a certain set of standards, or in some ways, it's been inseparably tied to morality. And so for some of us, that means that character feels really dated, like it's something from a bygone era. Maybe it's valued by our grandparents or even our great grandparents, but particularly in the world in which we live right now, it often to young people feels really irrelevant because they don't see a lot of models of Christ-like character. 
Uh, and so a lot of us associate character with a set of spiritual rules that's really about behavioral modification. Mm, but interesting. The, yes, but that is not what we mean when we are talking about character. So what we saw, again, in these youth ministries that we were talking with and visiting, as well as in our comprehensive review of character from scripture and from research, from other bodies of research, what we saw is that uh, character is really about living out Jesus's goodness every day by loving God and our neighbors. And so when we do that, character has a very different connotation. It becomes much more than just making teenagers into good kids, which is a typical compliment that we hear a lot when we are in youth ministry spaces at churches. Oftentimes, people will come up to us and be like, oh, we've got such good kids. Uh, and the problem with that is the goal of Christian formation isn't just to make good kids. It's actually to form disciples with the character of Christ. Amen. And yes, absolutely. Amen. Right. Yeah. And while good kids and disciples with Christ-like character are related, they aren't the same. There's a nuance there. And that's what we saw again and again as we talked to youth leaders who were doing this really well in their spaces, that their goal, their end game wasn't this idea of good kids. It was, what are the fruits of the Spirit? How are young people living like Jesus? Mm -hmm. Jen, I'm glad you wrote a book about this. This is really good stuff. You know, it seems like kids nowadays are hearing story after story of a person that's had some kind of moral or character failure. How are these stories impacting kids today? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, think about any given week in the news, right? There are always stories of moral failures. We're even seeing documentaries on those right now, like Hulu has the one about Hillsong. I did see and that. What's Yes, right. And what's interesting to us is that oftentimes our young people are tuned into those stories in a way that we are not necessarily. And so they're seeing them from afar, but young people are also really aware of the hypocrisy that they're seeing in people that they know in real life. So in the pastors, in their churches, in parents, in coaches, in teachers, um, so the sense of they're wondering, are people the same when they're in one space as they are when they're out in public? And whenever young people see something that is uh, hypocritical, they really start to latch on to this. And it contributes to distrust in the church as mm -hmm. an institution and to leaders as a whole. And so one of the ways that we really feel like we can respond to that is to cultivate the kind of environment where church is the first place that students think about when they hear these stories of moral failure. We want teenagers to think not that, oh, I can't talk about this at church, but instead we want them to know we need to go to church because we need to wrestle with this and talk about it. And one of the things that we saw, again, in these great churches that we had the privilege of walking with throughout this research is that they were actually proactively having open-ended conversations about moral failures. So they were asking kids things like, why do you think people are talking about this? And what does this situation mean for us? What can we learn from it? 
as well as how does our faith compel us to respond to this situation and to live differently in our own lives. And so in the course of doing that, they were giving young people the space to actually name what they were seeing around them, to grieve and lament that, and again, to use a term from our compass, to make meaning from that and wrestle with, okay, so what does that mean for my own life as I seek to live out my own faith in the world around Mm -hmm. me? Jen, I, I already wish I had more time with you, but we're going to take a break and we come back. I've got all kinds of more questions. Jen Bradbury is my guest. Uh, her book is Faith Beyond Youth Group, Five Ways to Form Character and Cultivate Lifelong Discipleship. We'll be right back. When you sponsor a child in need, you change their life. Your child learns that God loves them more than they can imagine and that he has special plans for their life. Your child gets help with school and is taught leadership, life skills, and how to overcome poverty and succeed. Your child gets nutritious food and vital medical care that often saves lives. You might not be able to change the world, but for one child, you can change theirs. Meet the kids. Find your child at MyFaithRadio.com. I'm back with Jen Bradbury. She's written a book, Faith Beyond Youth Group, Five Ways to Cultivate Character and Cultivate Lifelong Discipleship. I think I saw some research, and maybe it was Pew Research or Barna, that that the percentage of youth workers that have a biblical worldview was around 14%. It was shocking to me. Yeah, I mean, that is definitely something that we are seeing, Bill. Um, So that really goes into this sense of how do we teach for transformation if our youth leaders themselves aren't grounded the way that we would expect them to be? And so part of the beauty of what we saw in this element of teach for transformation in this Faith Beyond Youth Group Compass is that it takes us directly back to Scripture And essentially what we found is that youth leaders who are doing this well are looking at how Jesus taught, and then they're actually teaching in the same way. And so Jesus didn't just teach by sermons, right? Jesus also taught through storytelling. Jesus was the perfect example of a question asker. And so he taught by asking people questions to help them come up with the answers themselves. And so some of those elements, Bill, are things that can that youth leaders can do, that we can cultivate in youth leaders as we train, as pastors speak into them, as they read uh, different books, to give them the skills to be able to instill biblical literacy in the young people uh, who they minister to. Mm-hmm. Jen, what is the Gen Z generation again? What are their ages? Yeah, so those are the kids in our youth ministries right now okay uh, and down to about uh my my oldest daughter is eight and she's the bottom of that generation okay and then it goes up to the kids who are freshmen and sophomores in college right okay. now so how do we cultivate trust with this this group they're they're not a normal group by the way <laughs> they are not a normal group in so so many ways and trust is definitely no longer a given Uh, We see this across the board in any study that is about trust, that trust levels drop by generation. 
And so today's young people trust others less and trust institutions less than ever. And what's particularly interesting about this generation, though, is that they actually trust influencers more than they trust institutions. It's just crazy. It is. Yeah. And so we we think of this generation as a TikTok generation. And what we mean by that is how they perceive authority. So for a high schooler in your student ministry or in your home, if they want to know what is true, what is right, what is authoritative, they go to TikTok and they search by whatever question they are asking. And they hear from a bunch of different voices and they look at who's got the most followers and they start piecing those things together. So we want to kind of borrow from that as we think about how do we actually cultivate trust in and amongst a generation who's used to that. And what is really important is that cultivating trust is not actually about grand gestures. Instead, it's about the same old things that have always been used to cultivate relationships in general. And so those are consistency and closeness. So again, taking this back to TikTok, one of the things that makes young people really respond to TikTok is that even though they don't have a personal relationship with the people on TikTok, the people, the influencers are consistent. And so young people perceive them as being close to them. And so, again, we want to borrow from that as we minister to young people. We want to be consistent in our relational longevity with them. We want to be in it for the long haul. And we also want to find relational proximity. So we want to be near them. So essentially, trust boils down to show up when you say you're going to show up. And that sounds so basic, but every time we talk to people, um, we hear the truth of that. And as an example of that, one of the churches we visited in our research uh, was a smaller urban church. And what they had found is that their congregation was moving out away from where the church was physically. And so rather than see that as a problem, the pastor actually began arranging this group of adults who would go up and pick teenagers up and bring them to youth group each week. And this pastor very smartly assigned the same adult to go pick up the same group of kids each week. And in doing that, what ended up happening is that those adult drivers cultivated trust because they were consistent and they were close. And every Wednesday night, they'd have an hour in the car with young people in which they were hearing stories of their lives. They were hearing about the things that were keeping these young people up at night. And they were responding with empathy, essentially leaning in and inviting these young people to tell them more. And the young people did, because again, the the adults showed up when they said they were going to. And so over time, trust formed between the drivers and the young people. And as that trust formed, it also moved into how the young people interacted with the church because they started associating those adults with the church. And so it helped to restore some of that trust in the institution of the church as well. Oh, Jen, that sounds simple and brilliant all at the same time. <laughs> yes, absolutely. You know, when you talk about discipleship and mentoring, sometimes the word mentoring is, is that's a heavy word. But if you said to somebody, could we ever get together? And I'd love to uh, hear your about what's going on in your world, but then I could also tell you what worked for me and where I failed. 
And I bet any young kid would go, ooh, I wouldn't mind hearing that. Yeah, absolutely, Bill. We saw this so profoundly um, in the element of the compass that we call modeling growth. And so this very much comes back to your earlier question about young people being perceptive. They know when there are character failures going on. Um, And what's interesting is that they care about seeing people essentially restored. So young people don't need us to be perfect. We actually like to say they they are fine with us being authentically imperfect. Mm-hmm. Um, but part of that is the willingness to actually own our failures, to say, here's where I screwed up today, whether it was at work or in my marriage or with my kids or with my parents or whatever that may be. And here's how I made it right. And when we are able to do that, what we saw again and again was the sense that when we talk to young people, they don't actually always know personally what it means to be successful. But every last teenager in your life that you come into contact with knows what it means to fail. And so when we authentically invite them into stories of our failures, We show them that you are still welcome at church, that you still belong, that your failures don't exclude you from the kingdom of God and from following Jesus. And we give them a real life framework for here's how I can follow Jesus as the imperfectly beautiful person that I am. Uh, Because you don't want them to be stuck feeling identified by their failures ever. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Think of the trouble you and I would be in right now today if we <laughs> we stayed identified by our failures. Oh my gosh, yes. And a- another related part of this bill too is also the ability uh to invite young people to vocalize their doubts and their questions. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times young people will look to adults particularly in churches as being the people who have this whole faith thing all figured out. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that's not what it looks like for a high school student. It's definitely not what it looks like for a middle schooler who has questions about literally everything that you tell them. And so when you invite them into a space that says, I want to know what your questions are, I want to know what your doubts are, you are safe to ask those here. And here are some of the things that I'm wrestling with, too. Yeah, we show them that, you know, faith is not this destination that we have arrived at, that it is truly a lifelong journey. Jen, thank you so much. Delight having you on. Yeah, thanks a lot, Bill. You bet. We'll take a short break and be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.